as we come to the, the preaching of the word. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 12. We're going to look at the, at the seven, 17 verses of, of chapter 12. Um, and you might think when we do read this text, we're going to read basically the entire chapter. It's printed for you uh, in your bulletin as well if you'd like to follow along there. And like I said, I've been going through a series on Revelation. It's really stretched me and tested me in a lot of different ways. It's a book I've never really taken on. And really, I hope my hope is this morning is I found, especially the second half of this passage, to be really encouraged, encouraging for my own heart. But even then, if, if I walk away this morning and you might have walked in maybe afraid of the book of Revelation or fearful of approaching it, if you walk out of here going, I think I might want to go look at that a little bit more, I will count that as a win. Um, and as we look at this text, as we as a start up here, we're, you may not know it, you probably do live in here in this area, that we're coming up, or we actually just passed the 12th anniversary, official anniversary of the start date of the global war on terrorism that started up in uh, 2001, kind of officially, unofficially. And this war has been fought on, on multiple countries, thousands have died on both sides, an astronomical amount of money has been spent on it. And, but for most of us, we probably haven't felt the immediate effects of this war. I mean, especially living in this area, I mean, a lot of people are shipping off, and a lot of people are going overseas, and I mean, we live in, like, military land right here, which is good and fine. But at the same time, we don't feel the weight of the actual battle right here in our backyard. And we haven't been faced with food rationing. Bombs aren't falling in our town, etc. And I would say it's easy to forget about that war because it's not directly impacting us. Does that make sense? Like we might see it on the news every now and then, but we're not like screaming from our house to our car worried about a bomb dropping. You know, it's not right in our backyard. And I know that I know that that's not everybody in this room. I mean, there might there might be some of you who are here who have lost a loved one in that war or who are feeling the direct impact of that. And I am not downplaying that whatsoever one little bit. They're saying, on a whole, there's been some people that have said, our military is at war, our country is not at war. Like, it's kind of the military's job, it's not our country. And the thing about this, as we look at this passage, is there's an even larger war that we are all involved in, and it's in, we're involved in it at the spiritual level, and it has been going on for millennia. And you can't opt out, and you were drafted into this war the second you were born. But there is another war going on that does directly impact us day in and day out, at the heart level, at the spiritual level, and you were immediately drafted into it the second you took your first breath on earth. That's what we're talking about this morning. And as we look at this passage, I want to give you the three, kind of three guiding principles for Revelation. These are the things that I repeat to my students every single week, just to kind of frame your brain for what we're about to read. Because Revelation, number one, is a picture book, not a puzzle book. It's such John, it's very image-driven. We're typically word-driven people, aren't we? We like logic, we like this, leads to that, leads to this. And so when we're faced with something that is very dramatic in its imagery, sometimes we really don't know what to do with it. Like we're going to meet a dragon that's trying to eat a baby, and there's water coming all over the place. And, but Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. John is painting impressionistically. Like, you've ever seen, uh, was it Van Gogh's Starry Night, where, um, you know, like the sky has these massive big swirls in it, and the, the castle, and everything's kind of out of scale. It's not one of those things that you get out the ruler and you start measuring, like, okay, is this drawn to scale? Is, is the church in there? Is the building, is it like 30 feet high, or is it 300 feet high? Or, you know, you're not doing that. It's meant to elicit a reaction from 
It's meant to kind of draw you in and, and make you kind of sit up and stare at it a little bit. And that, that's what John is doing here. And also, Revelation gives us images that are, are best understood by looking to other parts of the Bible. The great interpretive principle of the Bible, that Scripture interprets Scripture. And Revelation quotes other parts of the Bible. It is so rich in its either direct quotations or just allusions to other parts of the Scripture that you kind of have to go to other parts to kind of understand what's going on. And then finally, what Revelation does is gives us a heavenly perspective of the same event from different camera angles. It cycles its way through, like there's seven cycles of judgment. And if you can imagine, like if you're watching a football replay and somebody fumbles on the field, what do they do? They go to the different camera angles, right, to find the best one, and you get a new, a, a new little piece of information with every new angle. When did the ball pop out? When did it hit the field? That, that's how Revelation works. You are getting different visions of the second coming of Jesus from different camera angles. And that's called a fancy word for you dumb takers. It's called progressive recapitulation. I'll be happy to tell you how to spell that afterwards. And what it does is as the book progresses, it recaps itself. And each time it gets progressively more intense. That's, that's how the book of Revelation works. That's just kind of frame your brain as we go. And let's look at this passage. Revelation chapter 12, the whole, the whole chapter, starting in verse 1. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on, its, on, on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has, she has been a, a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had, he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dragon poured from his, that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The grass withers and the flower fades, and the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. 
Let's pray together as we approach this text this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would meet us here, open up our hearts, open up our minds as we're confronted with this text that might be confusing, these images that might be confusing to us. We pray that you would teach us, that you would lead us, help us to see your great love for us, help us to find out more about ourselves, but ultimately more about you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Now, I admit that it can be odd to use the phrase invisible war in our hearts. Like, that can be kind of this ethereal thing that's kind of floating out in the clouds, but it's not really something that you can grab hold of and, and, and carry around with you. And it almost kind of feels like that phrase, the global war on terror, because it seems so distant and really not part of our everyday lives. You know, the, this thought of this invisible war that's going on in our hearts just kind of feels like it floats out there in the clouds. But I think you've probably actually struggled with this more than you know. And I think if you've ever driven by a Krispy Kreme donut store when the, when the red hot now sign is out, you know that you have felt, you know exactly what that invisible war in your heart feels like, right? I mean, suddenly you've been driving, you have plans, you were going somewhere, and then suddenly your heart is gripped with this deep love for what is rolling off the conveyor belt at that moment. And you immediately feel this war inside of you, right? It's a war between your desire for the hot, delicious donut and the calorie count, or the fat count. You know, you're, you're kind of going through the schemes in your head. <clears throat> maybe it's a war between those fat grams and maybe your desired body image. You know, where you think, like, oh, I don't need to... I know that if I go in there, I'm going to take six of those to the face. And I probably don't need to do that. And maybe it's a war between even your driving plans. Like, okay, I, I've got to be at this place on time, but I can swing in here and like go through the drive-through, and I can pick a couple up, and it'll probably only put me back maybe two minutes or so. But you feel this war between your driving plans and just the, the sheer pull of pure deliciousness. You know, like nothing beats a hot Krispy Kreme right off the conveyor. It kind of melts. You know, it's like you eat it, and it's like, I did, did, I, did that even cross my tongue? Like, it, it just kind of dissolved, and so you end up eating six of them, you know, just to kind of get the, you know, just to complete the experience, you know? It's for science, right? And there is this invisible war inside of us at the heart level, and I would even argue at the spiritual level in that moment, because Krispy Kreme is that good. I mean, there's, it goes way deep. <laughs> And I think we've all had moments where we feel this inward struggle in our hearts and our minds, you know, um, not just with Krispy Kreme, but maybe with other things that go on in our lives. Maybe it's a struggle with pornography where you think, I, I know I shouldn't be looking at that, but I just can't help myself. I kind of feel this tension, this war. Maybe it's a struggle with your body image, you know, where you think, I should look this way, and I, mean, I want to do this, and I need to go to the gym more, but I also need to rest, and you know, this, this tug of war inside of your heart. Maybe it's even personal ethics at work. You know, I, sh I know I shouldn't be doing that. Nobody's really going to see it. Is this stealing? Well, you know, how is it? And it's almost like sometimes our heart and our minds are, are like lobbing grenades at each other. You know, where the, the heart is lobbing this grenade in, the mind then meets it back. And you have this war and struggle. And the amazing thing about the Bible is it is not full of people who are like these plastic, unaffected folks with no emotions. I mean, the Bible is amazing because it taps into just the raw nature of the human condition. The struggle that's in some... Have you ever read the Psalms? I mean, it goes from the heights of joy to the pits of despair within like two Psalms. And everything in between. 
And Romans 7, Paul, I mean the Apostle Paul, we think about the Apostle Paul as this great strong missionary who's going in and, you know, he's like the Avengers, you know, he walks in and he's just, you know, punching the bad guys out and he's taking, you know, taking the Gentile mission by storm and he's, he's this guy that's unaffected by shipwrecks and beatings and stonings and but I think in many ways, Romans 7 really gives us an, in, an insight into his heart, where it's Paul's struggle with sin. He struggled with his own heart, his own condition. And he says, I feel another law waging war against the law of my mind. Romans 7, verse 23. That even Paul, the Apostle Paul, felt this struggle that we feel today. That the human heart has changed 0% since the fall. Zero. And there's this bigger spiritual war that's been raging between Christ and Satan that's impacted everything and everyone around us. But we ignore this war because we don't recognize the bombs that it has dropped in the backyard of our hearts. We're used to the potholes. We're used to the craters. Why? Because they've always been a part of our landscape. We've, we've we have no clue what it feels like to not walk through a world that is potmarked with the bombs of sin. No clue. And so we just get used to them. They've always been part of our landscape. I mean, have you ever been in your house? Like, you may have lived in your house for years and years and years and years and years. And you walk into your house, and suddenly, like, you're sitting here again, and you look around, and you see something that you haven't seen before. You know, you're like, I, I didn't know that was there. Like, has that crack always been there? Or has that book with the yellow spine always been there? You know, I mean, you kind of look at it, like, is that, that tree that I can see through my window, has that always been like that? And, and you suddenly see it for the first time, and then what happens? You kind of fixate on it, right? Like you can't get it out of your brain. I mean, it's, it's something that it's always been there, but suddenly you've kind of been given a fresh perspective on it, and then suddenly it becomes a part of your kind of everyday life. Does that make sense? And here, the heavenly perspective that God gave John on this ancient war helps give us perspective on the war that's going, in, going on for our hearts and in our hearts every single day. It's like John is going, hey, remember that little, like, yes, that crack that's been in your house the whole time has been there the whole time. You've just never seen it. And so Revelation gives us these vivid images to make us go, make us kind of wake up and go, oh, maybe this is real. And we're going to look at two quick points as we move through this text. These are going to be our, our points if you're a note-taking type of person. We're going to look at the history of the war and the weapons of the war. The history and the weapons. So let's look at the history of the war. We see that this chapter starts with this vivid picture in verses 1 through 4. Of uh, uh, It says, I saw a great sign that appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And it goes on, and we meet three main characters here in this passage. Number one, we meet this huge, scary red dragon. And verse 9 tells us that it is Satan. And we get the picture of him sweeping a third of the stars with his tail. And some scholars think that this points to the other angels who fell with Satan by rebelling against God and are now kind of part of his demon army. You know, that he sweeps folks and he gathers them with his tail. And But we also meet this radiant, pregnant woman who is you know, clothed with the sun and stars. And she's this radiant woman. And that, that phrase, clothed with the sun, moon, and stars, is a direct reference to Genesis 37, chapter 9. And she's a symbol of the church. She has these 12 stars, uh, you know, the tw with 12 tribes of the Old Testament, the 12 apostles in the New Testament. She's a picture of God's kind of gathered people. And we meet, finally, the third thing we meet, the third person we meet, is this baby. And in verse 5, it says that he is one to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And Psalm 2 gives us a really 
good insight into who this person is. You probably had a guess. It's probably Jesus, right? I mean, it's a good Sunday school answer. But in Psalm 2, here's what it says. It says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Straight out of Psalm 2. Messianic Psalm. There's this guy who's coming. He's different. He's the king. He's going to dash the nations with a rod of iron. He's going to rule. That's exactly what how this baby is described here. That psalm's messianic. It points to Jesus. And this rod of iron is, is, is some, some scholars have debated on what this is. But a lot of them think it was like a shepherd's club to fight off the enemies of the flock. <clears throat> you know, we think shepherd that has the crook, which he did, had the staff. But he also had the rod, the rod of iron, so that when the wolf came in, he had something to protect the flock with. So he said, so basically we get a picture of a king protecting his flock with a rod of iron. And notice the dragon is trying to devour the child as soon as it's born. And you're like, why is that? Because in verse 17 it says the dragon goes off to make war with the offspring of the woman. And it's, it says those who keep the commandments of God. And there's this unique word that's used here. For offspring there in that verse 17. And that word is translated seed. Going to go make war with her offspring. Make war with her seed. And what that does is that points all the way back to Genesis 3. Yes. All the way back. The amazing thing about the Bible is it comes full circle. Genesis 1 and 2. Revelation 21 and 22. They're like bookends. They mirror each other in a lot of different ways. Where the relationship with God and man that was broken in Genesis 3 is now restored in Revelation 21 and 22 that I get to preach on on Tuesday. I'm really excited. It's a great passage. And what we see is that points all the way back to Genesis 3 where the verse, Genesis 3.15 where the verse says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. That's that word seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And theologically, Genesis 3.15, that is called the Proto-Euangelion in Greek. And what that means is first gospel. Proto-first, euangelion, gospel or good news. And we think that good news, the gospel, only applies to like the New Testament. Here it is promised on the, on the heels of the, the train wreck of sin. Sin has just entered the world. And what is it met with? Grace. A promise. That there is going to be this one who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Revelation 12 that we're talking about, the dragon. There is one coming who's going to defeat that dragon. He's coming soon. We don't know when, but he will come. And we theologically, we get the idea of seed theology. That basically the entire outworking of the Bible from Genesis 3.15 on is an outworking of this war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Between Jesus and between Satan. We see the outworking of that. That's kind of the, the thread that holds the Bible together as it moves forward. And you see the covenant promises that are made. It all, it all has to, it's all interconnected. And basically from this point forward, the rest of the Bible is this war, this in-between between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We see that in the lineage of Christ through the Old Testament and the New Testament found in Matthew 1. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had Judah, and it goes on and on and on until we get to Jesus. We see his lineage. And even when Jesus was born, there was another tyrant trying to kill newborn babies and wipe out that promise. Who was it? King Herod, right? 
He's trying to, he's almost like the dragon here in this passage. There was one who was waiting for the child to be born so that he could go and kill that child so that that promise would be broken. And the hard truth about this passage is that Satan is real. Evil is real. It's not just this kind of ethereal floating thing. It is real. And his demons are real. And there's, and there's another hard truth here, too. There's no neutrality. You're either on the team of the dragon or the team of the lamb. That's it. There's no middle ground. And that's what Revelation is so amazing at, is calling us to, to, to grapple with this. But there's the army of Satan, and there's the army of the lamb. There's no in-between. And the thing is, is like when we look at it, does the dragon succeed in killing Jesus? No. Thankfully not, Right? If not, then we're all, if he does, then we're all in trouble, right? But he doesn't. He doesn't kill Jesus, even though he tries everything that he can. We see that God's people were protected in the wilderness in the Exodus account when they were drawn out. And constantly the army of Pharaoh going after them. And who protects them? God does. Who, who watches over them and cares for them and fights off their enemy? God does. We see in verses 15 and 16 here that the dragon tries to sweep the child and mom away with this flood that comes out, but the earth comes to her aid and swallows the water. And I don't have time to go into what all that means and what 1,260 days means. Again, maybe just whetten your appetite for maybe a little bit more study. And the thing about it is that when Christ was born in Bethlehem, it was God's victory over the dragon. The back of the dragon was broken. When Jesus set foot on, when Jesus was born, when the promised one was brought into this world alive, despite the efforts of King Herod, Satan's back at that moment was broken. And Jesus comes in and he says what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom's now. I'm that one. I'm him. And I'm here. But the thing about it is that the devil is still alive today, but you can think about him like a rabid dog on a leash. He's trying his best to, anybody that comes within that little circle, you're going to get bitten. But he's on a leash. The idea of um, like Revelation 20, where in the future he's going to be destroyed, which I got to preach on last week, which was great. I mean, at this, I'm, I'm at the point in the Bible where there's no more devil anymore. It's amazing. But right now, right now his back is broken, but his tail is still swishing. So he and his demons are making war on the rest of the women's children, i.e. Christians in the church today, that if you're a Christian, by your spiritual rebirth, you are part of this very covenant family, a child of the covenant made with Abraham. Abraham and Isaac, Isaac and Jacob, all the way through Jesus. You are born into that family. That means that you are also brought into this spiritual war. Whether you like it or not, you are drafted into it. And here's what Brian Habig said. He's a pastor in Greenville, South Carolina, who's, he preached through Revelation. It was very helpful. He said, if you don't think about the devil, if you're a Christian, you can be certain that he thinks about you. You can't just hide your head in the sand and, and hope that Satan goes away. He actually hopes that you do that so that you'll forget about it because he's got you right where he wants you. But if you're a Christian, you can't ignore Satan because he's thinking about you. And why is Satan so intent on destroying Christians? Why is he so intent in this passage? Verse 12. He knows that his time is short. His fate's sealed. And he's trying to take down as many people with him as he possibly can before he's done away with in Revelation 20. He knows his time is short. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Lord of the Rings, the first one. If you haven't, I'll try my best to describe it. Lord of the Rings movie, we have Gandalf, Gandalf the Grey, the big 
wizard with the long beard and the big pointy hat. And they are they are fighting through the mines of Moria. They go under the they go under the mountain and they're trying to find safe passage through that. And there is this scene where they hear this rumbling under the mines, and there is this big fiery being, this devil kind of thing that comes up, has this big whip and these big huge horns, and he's completely on fire. And in the books and the movie, it's the Balrog who's been living in the mines of Moria. He's kind of holed up in there. And he gets awoken and he comes and there's this great scene where they're fighting and there's like this little land bridge that connects this side to this side and, and the Balrog is chasing them and Gandalf's kind of right in between them and they're moving forward and all of a sudden Gandalf spins around and he stands there and he speaks to the Balrog and he says this great scene where he goes, you shall not pass! And he drives his staff into the ground and glows white and all the others keep running. And, Balrog, and the Balrog and Gandalf just have this epic fight. And it looks like Gandalf defeats him. The bridge kind of crumbles. Here goes the Balrog disappearing into the deep, dark caverns. And you kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Kind of, then all of a sudden, the whip of the Balrog comes up. And it grabs Gandalf by the ankle and pulls him. And he's, high, he's holding on the edge of the cliff and he tells the others to run. Run. And he falls in and the amazing thing about this, we think about this passage, how does that apply? How does Satan do what he does? That's the weapons of the war, point two, quickly. In verses 7 through 9, Michael and his angels fight against, the, fight against Satan's army of fallen angels, and the bad guys are thrown out of heaven, and where do they land? Earth. And this is what I really want you to focus on in this passage. How does Satan, what does Satan use as his weapons on earth? Okay? Verse 9, deception. Verse 10, accusations. Those are his weapons that he uses. And the thing about being deceived is, if you're being deceived, you don't know you're being deceived, right? Deception is sneaky like that. You don't know you're being deceived. And Satan is a master at half-truths and twisting the scripture. It's not straight up lying. It's taking just enough of the truth and twisting it to deceive us, to make it sound good when it's really not. And he does more than just deceive. He actively accuses. And what's this look like? Have you ever had one of those moments where you wake up and you're like, does God really love me? Is he really there with me? This accusation that comes up. I mean, have you ever been reading your, have you ever been without reading your Bible in a long time or praying in a long time and then wonder if God still cared about you? The picture is, the picture that we have is one of Satan having accurate files of all of our sin open on the table and he is openly accusing us in court. And he's trying to make you feel like a hypocrite and a fool. He wants you to sleep in on Sunday so that you don't hear good preaching or not come to church because you feel guilty because you haven't been in a while. He wants you to, to get so busy that you never read your Bible or pray. He wants you to love the world, what the world has to offer over Jesus. And what weapons do the Christians have in this fight? Verse 11, the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. The scary thing about Satan's records is they are deadly accurate. He is airing your dirty laundry, and every bit of it's true. Every single bit of that is true, and that is really scary. That Satan is openly accusing you in the courts of heaven. And what he says is 100% right. And you cannot fight the devil on your own. He's way too smart, and he's way too powerful. And you are giving yourself way too much credit if you think that you, if you think that you can fight him by yourself. Because he wants you to fight him by yourself. 
He'll tell you to work hard to earn God's love, and then he'll tell you that you're an outsider, that nobody could possibly love you. He'll tell you that your past is too checkered to ever warrant love and acceptance. He'll tell you you're a fool and a failure and a, and a fake. And he'll make you think that Jesus doesn't love you so that you'll start throwing punches on your own. And he's got you right where he wants you. And just when you think that you have him beaten, you'll feel that whip around your ankle dragging you down with him. Just when you think you've got him, here comes the whip. You need Jesus. We all do. We need to stop fooling ourselves. We all need to repent of our arrogance and our pride and our self-sufficiency. We think that we can take the world and take the devil on by ourselves. We're fooling ourselves. We're kidding ourselves. We all need to believe the gospel that Jesus came into this world to save sinners and to fight that fight that we can never fight on our own. And when Satan accuses you, you don't point at your spotless record. You don't point at your spotless record because you don't have one. Remember, the devil has the files open on the table and he's openly accusing you and all of it's true. You don't point to your spotless record, do you? You point to the Lamb. You point to Jesus and you tell the devil to talk to him. Yes, that's true, but I'm with him. I have his record, not my own. You let Jesus intercede for you as your advocate. You plead his grace. You plead his mercy. You plead his strength. You don't plead your own strength. You don't plead your own record. You don't plead anything that you bring to the table. You bring nothing to the table. All you have is Christ. And you go before his throne and you say, You are right. What, what is in that files is 100% true. And he paid for every bit of it. Isn't that amazing? Let me close with this. Out of the Westminster Larger Catechism, number 55. This is a great one. It asks the simple question, how does Christ make intercession? Let me read this to you. It answers, Christ makes intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven. In the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth. Declaring his will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them, and procuring for them quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failings, access with boldness to the throne of grace and acceptance of their persons and services. That God moves towards you and he intercedes to you by giving you access and meeting your daily failings with grace. Meeting that war within you when you feel Satan is attacking you and he is 100% right. He meets that with grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Freely by grace. Wow. That's amazing that this spiritual war that's going on around us has already been won. And we point to the Lamb who has already gained victory over, over Satan and his minions. And he's fighting for you. And he's your good shepherd. And he took the hits and he didn't have to. What a great picture of the gospel. If that's, if that's more of that in Revelation, I'm all over it. Give me some more of that. What a great picture. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace to us. Thank you that you've not left us alone, that you love us, that you care for us. Thank you that you, we have access to your throne of grace and that you answer all the accusations against us and that you bring for us quiet of conscience knowing that Every single sin that we have ever struggled with, Lord, you have met with grace, mercy, and forgiveness. May that sink deeply into our hearts. May our hearts be encouraged by that. May we trust and rest and see that you are good. Lord, and we pray that you would uh, encourage our hearts as we move forward. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.